So it's Hanukkah, folks. Happy Hanukkah to everyone here. This is one of my favorite holidays for a wide variety of reasons, the food, the festivity, but above all, it's because I believe that Judaism finds its best expression in simple yet effective rituals. It only takes a few moments, as we saw earlier, to light the Hanukkah. Yet as we watch the small flames glow against the backdrop of the longest, darkest nights of winter, the act of striking a match becomes a powerful reminder of our ability to bring light into the world. And right now, the world in its darkness feels so desperately in need of light. The joy of this season is shot through with the grief and the uncertainty and the fear that we have all been carrying with us for two months now. I imagine that I'm not the only one here who feels that's hard to catch my breath. Each time we receive some good news, every time I have been tempted to exhale and for a moment breathe easy, something awful happens. The last weekend of November, we experienced a brief pause in the war between Israel and Hamas. A few precious days of peace when a little over 100 hostages were returned to their homes, and the vast majority of these hostages were women and children. And seeing them reunited with their loved ones, I shared in our collective gratitude that this harrowing chapter of their lives had closed. We exhaled, at least for a moment. And then they shared their stories. And hearing some of the hostages give testimony on the gender-based violence that was inflicted upon them, both that perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th and that which occurred in captivity, my gratitude quickly diminished, tempered by the horror of what had happened to them. The details of these attacks are impossible to stomach, and I won't go into them right now, not here in this space, but bearing witness to what happened, ensuring that these stories are heard and held is important. It is essential and necessary work that all of us are called to do in whatever way we can, in whatever way we can. And we are called to this work because alongside the pain of hearing these stories came the pain of seeing how they were so easily dismissed. That people and organizations which have stood for the right and necessity of women to be heard and believed didn't lift up these voices, or worse, call them lies or fabrications or propaganda. When reports of gender-based violence first began to surface, Mallory Mosner wrote cynically on Medium, believe all women, unless they are Jews who deserved it. Dismissing their testimony simply because they are Jews was a second act of violence against these women, as unacceptable as it was cruel. It is also a disheartening example of how anti-Semitism has made its way into the same places where we have found community and purpose. We Jews who have been on the vanguard of gender equality for decades, from fighting for abortion access to championing the Me Too movement. But this is the pernicious nature of anti-Semitism, isn't it? One of the things that is most frightening, most dispiriting about anti-Semitism is its ability to masquerade behind causes that we believe in, to find its way into communities that we are members of. It makes the work of allyship especially fraught, 
as we can constantly calculate what is born of ignorance and what is born of hate. And while we certainly see it and find it easy to critique on the far right, it is much harder to face it in the center and on the left, which is the ideological home for so many Jews and for so many of us here in this community at Mishkan, because it means reevaluating relationships, some of which we have come to depend upon. It means the painful task of figuring out when we can tolerate disagreement and when we must draw boundaries between what is acceptable and what is not. And this can lead to an obsessive sort of paranoia as we listen closely to every statement, analyze every action, look behind every friendly face, wondering if the shadow of anti-Semitism is hiding there. There are, of course, the obvious moments when it's easy to point at something and say that. That right there is an act of anti-Semitism. Storefronts vandalized, graveyards desecrated, people chanting, gas the Jews. But even these incidents are hard to track. According to a recent article in Time magazine, 88% of American cities, that's 88% of American cities don't report hate crime data at all. So while we do know that anti-Semitism is the primary driver of religiously motivated hatred in the United States, when it occurs, where it occurs, how often it occurs, is still very unclear. And then there are the thankfully rarer incidents of overt violence. It has only been five years since a white supremacist walked into the Tree of Life synagogue and murdered 11 people, permanently altering our collective sense of safety in this country. But the problem is that more often than not, more often than not, anti-Semitism is an uneasy feeling a sense that the flavor is off, kind of like food just past its expiration date. It is something much harder to point at, at least directly. It's a wink and a nudge or an offhand comment, something that feels true, maybe actually is in part true, but where the veneer of rational thought is being used to mask the hatred behind it. Anti-Semitism thrives in close association with the truth or at least what we believe to be true. It casts its shadow between statements of fact so that it's harder to parse out what is hateful from what we might otherwise agree with. The Rabbi Jonathan Sachs once wrote that anti-Semitism is so hard to define because it presents as a series of contradictions. It's a virus that mutates to infect the body politic, adapting to any attempt to seek it out and eradicate it. It appears on the right, it appears in the left. It appears in the center. And so we find ourselves trying to draw attention to something that, when looked at directly, suddenly disappears or obfuscates itself behind a cause that is otherwise inoffensive, if not unassailable. We have seen this with Me Too. We saw it with Black Lives Matter. We are facing it in higher education, long a safe hold for Jews. And yes, we are finding the threads of anti-Semitism weaving its way through anti-Zionist coalitions, when calls for mutual liberation suddenly turn to chants for the eradication of Jews, and anti-Semitism has also found its way into the Zionist tent, when voices of evangelical pastors, who really only want us to return to our ancestral homeland to bring the second coming of Christ, are given the stage. Deep breath.
I understand that it can be painful, that it can feel deeply embarrassing or dislocating to recognize the causes and the communities that we care so deeply about have been compromised by anti-Semitism. I feel it too. But that's the thing, isn't it? Anti-Semitism is a malleable hatred seeping its way from the edges of society into the places we feel most safe. And it can do that precisely because anti-Semitism does not belong to the left or the right, as much as it might make us feel better to assign blame. The journalist Michelle Goldberg once wrote, for a huge number of anti-Semitic episodes, the political motive, if there is one, is illegible. She cites a statistic shared by Jonathan Goldblatt, national director of the ADL, that 80% of incidents they have documented cannot be attributed to any specific group or movement. 80%. While it finds its way into causes across the political spectrum, anti-Semitism belongs to none and all of them. So I am not here to adjudicate where the boundary exists between anti-Semitism and the social issues that it has become intertwined with. Although this is an important conversation that we as a community need to continue having because to name, to continually call it out is one of our most powerful tools for combating it. But what I do wanna talk about is how the shadow of anti-Semitism has found its way into places that we once felt at home and how that darkness weighs on all of us. Speaking on anti-Semitism, the civil rights activist Eric Ward explains that it distorts our understanding of how the actual world works. It isolates us. It alienates us from our communities, from our neighbors, and from participating in governance. It kills, but it also kills our society. Because anti-Semitism can appear anywhere. The dinner table, the bar, the protest, our halls of government, it encourages us to withdraw from our friends and allies, non-Jew and Jew alike, to lock our doors and refuse entry to anyone who comes knocking. Anti-Semitism wants us to give up on the world that we are trying to build, one where Jewish thriving is intertwined with the well-being of all people. It kills, as Eric Ward suggested, our society by driving disconnection and despair. There is a reason, there's a good reason that there has been an uptick in anti-Semitism since October 7th, as the tragedy unfolding in Israel and Gaza has rippled across the globe. The sociologist Emil Durkheim notes that anti-Semitism thrives, it thrives in social malaise, in times of unease and uncertainty, and it works hard to perpetuate that environment. It may feel like we can only be understood by other Jews, and even then, only some of them and only some of the time. <laughs> and this might be true. This might be true. Our experience in this moment is particular. It's informed by the painful lessons of a shared history. But while locked doors may keep us safe, at least temporarily, they also prevent us from engaging with a world that will move no closer to the one that we want to live in without our participation. In fact, our disconnection from it and the people who live in it only guarantees that the world will become worse. As I mentioned earlier, Hanukkah has only two mitzvot. See, simple yet effective. 
The first is to light candles, one for each of the eight nights. The second is to put the lit Hanukkah in a doorway or a window to pirsume hanes, or publicize the miracle. Hanukkah is an invitation to resist the urge to retreat from the world, to replace that locked door with an illuminated window. It is a bold statement that we, us Jews, are here, not as an admonition of our fear, but to say that despite the hatred that we might face, we refuse to disappear. This is, after all, one of the stories of Hanukkah. It's a revolt against forces that sought to erase us, a small ragtag group of freedom fighters overthrowing a repressive regime. You know the old saying, they tried to kill us, we survived. Let's eat. Let's eat. <laughs> but Hanukkah, Hanukkah is more than a commemoration of our survival. It is also an expression of hope for the future. Elie Wiesel once said that Judaism is not simply a history of persecution, it is a history of responses to persecution. The candles of the Hanukkah not only shine a light on the past, but they illuminate a path forward through the darkness we find ahead of us. Because here's the thing, we are not descendants of the Maccabees, we're not. Their history, of course, serves as the genesis of this holiday, a rebellion against the Seleucid Empire that ends against all odds with the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem and the establishment of the last independent Jewish state in the land of Israel until 1948. Their fire was as righteous as it was terrible, consuming all enemies in its path, including, I might add, Jews they felt that had become too Hellenized under centuries of Greek rule. Now, the descendants of the Maccabees, often called the Zealots, died in a final blaze of glory at the hilltop fortress of Masada, facing off against the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago. We, that is, all of us Jews alive today, both those of us born into this community and those of us who chose it, are descendants of the rabbis. And they tell a different story about Hanukkah, that when the temple was reclaimed, when it once again could become the living spiritual heart of our people, our ancestors could only find one cruise of oil to light the menorah. Yet that single jar somehow lasted eight whole nights, long enough for them to replenish their supply. It was a small miracle, much smaller than the history-making of toppling empires. And it was also an audacious expression of hope. They could have perceived the impossibility of that moment and given up. Anyone could see that there wasn't enough oil to last more than one night, yet they still lit the menorah. In the first story, no one wins. Greeks die, Jews die, and in the end, the zealots die. Their fire consumes everything in its path until it comes back to destroy them as well. And I get it. I get the temptation to burn it all down, especially when everything seems hopeless, especially when it feels like the entire world is out to get us. But if we burn it to the ground, it is nearly impossible for us to not also be caught in the conflagration. And while we might be safe for just a moment, tucked away in our fortresses, we cannot keep the world out forever. The rabbis propose a different way forward, one grounded in a radical commitment to our tradition's vision of a better future, to insist on the world that we want to live in, even if that world is not what we find at our doorstep, 
We put the Hanukkah in the window to remind us that we can, that we must be a light in the darkness, even if we are kindling those lights alone. And there will be moments when we are the only ones tending that light. The first few nights of Hanukkah are in some ways my favorite. Yes, the final night, when the Hanukkah is fully lit, all eight candles plush the shamash, burning bright. It's very beautiful, and it's very Instagrammable. I understand that. (laughs) But as we kindle one light, and then two, and then three, we watch how a single flame has the ability to illuminate an entire room. I want you to try it, maybe tonight or tomorrow. Turn the lights off. Even the shamash has the ability to transform that darkness, and seen from the outside how those small lights, those one, two, three pinpoints of light, catch the attention of everyone passing our homes. It's an uncompromising statement, however small, that we are here and that we're not going anywhere. An unwavering refusal to meet darkness in kind, but a commitment to create light instead. And the bold, over 2,000-year-old promise that we have not given up our hope for a better world. Like our ancestors, we don't know if this light will last through the dark nights ahead. But this is the lesson of the rabbi's story, after all, the story that we've inherited, that the only way to find out is if we strike the match. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening.